Hello, I'm Chris Hale, and welcome to Season 2 of the Dadcast, a podcast that provides read-alouds of short fiction, poetry, and scholarly articles to help a university student. The coffee mug is filled, breakfast cake is served, and the dogs have been walked. Let's get ready for the next episode of the Dadcast. Enjoy. Welcome to Episode 2 of the Dadcast. Today's article comes from Peter Nabokov and Robert Eastman's book, Native American Architecture. The article is Chapter 1, Wigwam and Longhouse, Northeast and Great Lakes. Wigwam. Verrazano's description of the hemispherical matte roof dwellings that he visited Narragansett Bay were Europe's introduction to the wigwam, a widespread American Indian house form. By the 1630s, the Algonquin word was used by Massachusetts colonists for any Indian dwelling, and soon it preempted more specific architectural terms across North America. Houses made of wood, bark, or even mud were labeled wigwams, simply because Indians occupied them. However, in the mid-18th century, chronicler Samuel Hopkins defined this Algonquin building type more precisely. A wigwam is an Indian house, in building of which they take small flexible poles and stick them into the ground, round such a space as they intend for the bigness of their house, whether greater or less. These poles they bend from each side and fasten them together, making an arch overhead, after which they cover the hole with bark of trees, leaving a hole in the top for smoke to go out. Strictly used, the word refers to a one- or two-family house of round or oblong floor plan built by woodland Indians. After its sapling frame of bent uprights was lashed together, horizontal pieces or stringers were tied in tiers to strengthen the frame and support the outer covering. Reed or grass mats or sheets of birch, elm, or chestnut bark. Great Lakes tribes often left the naked wigwam frame standing at familiar campsites and transported only their rolled-up coverings. The early Algonquin houses were likened by European observers to the garden arbors or bowers back home, or, as a Virginia colonist and historian Willem Strahey wrote in 1620, at best like our shepherd's cottages. Half a century later, the missionary and linguist Robert Williams admired this form of construction among the Algonquin-speaking Narragansett Indians with whom he lived. They gathered poles in the woods and put the great end of them in the ground, and bending the tops of them in the form of an arch, they bind them together with the bark of walnut trees, which is wondrous tough. In his report to Francis I, Verrazano noted that the Long Island house poles were logs split in halves, which may have meant long saplings split lengthwise to make them bend more easily. In the 1960s, inventive archaeologists seeking to replicate Algonquin building techniques in Virginia tried performing the poles into arcs before planting them in two to three foot poles, but there is no field data to suggest the local Pamunkey Indians did the same. Some post molds at the Asawampsit site appear to have been angled out, possibly so that the pole's tensile strength would be increased once they were bent inward. 
or so that the walls would lean outward and overhanging eaves would keep rain from dripping down them. In this century, anthropologists have studied woodland Indians in the Great Lakes, whose dwellings' forms were similar to those of the Eastern linguistic cousins. From detailed accounts of their technology, we can make educated guesses about East Coast Algonquin architectural practice. Among the Chippewa, for example, we know that it was usually the men's role to chop the framing saplings, for which they sought young hickory, basswood, or elm trees. Some Chippewa groups preferred ironwood because it bent easily when green and toughened without cracking when dried. To secure the poles, the supple tips were wound around each other or overlapped, and then lashed together with pliable strips of fresh white oak, tough roots, or inner basswood bark that had been made into cordage. The openwork arches, from five to eight feet high, were secured with lighter saplings that reached to the central smoke hole. Women took over at that point, sheeting the frame and installing the furnishings. They knew which bulrushes made the best wall mats and floor mats, and what size cattails should go into the outer roofing mats. The pulpy stalks were cut during September and October and stacked carefully to avoid mildew. Using 10-inch needles made from animal bones, the women sewed the slightly flattened cattails together with split spruce root, swamp milkwood, or nettle fiber, fashioning mats about 4 feet wide and 8 to 10 feet long. They were fine house coverings for a mobile people living in an extreme environment. They were pliable, lightweight, and provided effective insulation. According to anthropologist Karen Peterson, this was because they utilized the principle of insulation by means of walls enclosing a dead airspace in which convection currents are retarded by filaments. The walls are the outer layers made up of the hard lower halves of the leaves, while the filaments are the inner layers of thin leaf tips. Moreover, they were sewn together so that the stalks and leaves of the plants overlapping slightly to keep out rain and wind. When they reached a new campsite, women unfurled the mats and unpacked the household items wrapped in them. European visitors often were amazed at the speed with which camps were set up. Once the wigwam frame had been erected, the cattail mats were tied in courses up to the smoke hole so that the grain of the reeds ran vertically for efficient runoff. The hearth area was cleared and sometimes slightly excavated. The earthen floor around it was spread with mats and hides, and the utensils and stores placed in customary spots. The 17th century chronicler Thomas Morton wrote that the interior wall mats were finely sewed together with needles made from the splinter bones of a crane's leg with thread made of their Indian hemp. Additional mats were often fastened to the interior walls for decoration as well as warmth. Among the Chippewa, Minamini, and Winnebago, wall or sleeping mats were plated of cedar bark or bulrush in geometric patterns of brown and gray. Bark sheets were heavier and more awkward to transport than reed roofing mats, so whenever feasible, they were reserved for winter wigwams. Bark was harvested in spring when the sap was running in flats from elms, yellow birch, chestnut, oak, pine, black ash, or hemlock could easily be peeled off of the living trees. When birch was used, sections of the bark, about a yard square, were sewn together with spruce root 
into 10 to 15 foot rolls called apaquas by the Chippewa, which were stiffened at each end with cedar battens. After they had been stored for a while, the brittle rolls usually were warmed over a fire until they were limber enough to be wrapped around the house frame. Great Lakes people often mix the outer coverings, combining sidewalls of cattail mats with birch bark rolls draped over the ground, the round roof, or substituting black ash barks for mats on the sidewalls. A hide or a blanket served as the door. By nightfall, the interior of the wigwam became a cozy shell with intermingling odors of wood smoke, earth, bark, sweat, and food. Splinters of pitch pine sometimes were burned for illumination, but most of the light came from the central fire. Smoke escaped through a parting of the mats. Sometimes the edge of the smoke hole were fireproofed with a mud lining that baked hard and black. Large wigwams had several hearths, drying fish, strips of venison, and later metal kettles hung over them from crossbars or stakes. Within arm's reach around the hearth were earthenware pots, polished maple bowls, a hardwood mortar and pestle, and bark buckets made watertight with spruce gum caulking. Beds softened with mats ringed the hearths. As William Strahey observed shortly after he arrived in Virginia in 1606, round about the house on both sides of their bedsteads, which are thick short posts staked into the ground a foot high. Far to the west, however, where the woodlands began to give way to prairie and the climate was not so damp, wigwam dwellers often unrolled sleepy mats or heaped skins on the ground. Early observers reacted differently to the comfort afforded by these native houses. Strahey praised the Virginia Indians for carefully sitting their dwellings among protective trees so that snow or rain could not assault them, not that the sun and summer annoy them, and the roof being covered, as I say, the wind is easily kept out. The Jesuit missionary father, Paul Lejeune, who visited Indian wigwams along the St. Lawrence River in 1633, held another opinion, however. This prison, he complained, in addition to the uncomfortable positions that one must occupy upon a bed of earth, has four other great discomforts, cold, heat, smoke, and dogs, to which other chroniclers added fleas, cooking and garbage smells, and the absence of privacy. Yet Daniel Gookin of Massachusetts, writing 40 years later, paid their dwellings this compliment. I have often lodged in their wigwams, and found them as warm as the best English houses. Conical Wigwam The cone-shaped wigwam covered with yellow birch bark was the principal shelter for hunting tribes of the northern Atlantic coast and across much of the eastern subarctic. Built by such Algonquin tribes as the Penobscot, Micmac, and Naskipi, who lived above the corn-growing belt, the conical wigwam provided sanctuary from the fierce winters. A simple, sturdy structure, it was framed of straight yellow spruce, cedar or fir poles, and encased in bark rolls sewn together from smaller birch bark flats. The Micmac Indians of Nova Scotia began construction by lashing four 14-foot poles together and placing them upright with the bark intact. Secondary poles were laid into the crotches at the juncture, and a horizontal ring of small sticks near the midsection stabilized the cone. When the weather was especially bitter, insulating grass was layered over the frame, then the birch bark sheets were tied on by fastening fiber cords to small flaps left on the bark. 
More poles were leaned against the structure and then bound together at the top to clamp down the bark sheets. Inside the lodge, women laid the flooring with interlaced, sweet-scented fir boughs, curved high up to make a fresh, springy mattress. Cooking gear hung from a rack of spruce twigs tied below the smoke hole. Space and furnishings in these houses had to be used with extreme efficiency. The Nova Scotia historian Duncan Campbell wrote of the Micmac wigwams he visited in 1873, There is a place for everything and everything in its place, every post, every bar, every fastening, every tier of bark, and every appendage, whether for ornament or use, in this curious structure has a name, and every section of the limited space has its appropriate designation and use. Perhaps it would be impossible to plan a hut of equal dimensions in which the comfort and convenience of inmates could be so effectively secured. Great Lakes Dwellings The Indians of the Great Lakes survived on a mixed economy of hunting, fishing, growing corn, harvesting wild rice, and collecting maple sugar. The language groups concentrated in this region were Central Algonquin speakers such as the Chippewa, and Siouan speakers such as the Winnebago. Each season they used a different pattern of structures and spaces, constructing lengthy bowers for grand annual ceremonies, small enclosures for shamanic performances, funerary shelters for the dead, sweat lodges, minstrel huts, and special sheds for processing maple sugar and other foods. The Chippewa, who inhabited the forests and streams around Lake Superior and Huron, built four different house types. Their domed winter wigwam was called Wiganogan, which combines their word for bent, referring to its frame, with the root word for dwelling. This oval-shaped house could be easily enlarged to make a multi-family structure resembling a longhouse. The Chippewa also constructed a conical winter wigwam covered with yellow birch bark that was called Anasawagan. Extending this building with a ridge pole, they created the Ginodawa, or long tent, to shelter several families in the winter. In summer, they moved into the Gakagogan, or gabled bark house, which usually was sided with slabs of elm bark. In lodges occupied by more than one family, invisible boundaries divided the interior, and rules governed everyone's movements to ensure order and relative privacy. If four Chippewa families shared a long tent, there would be four door flaps, two at each end. Each family owned a door and slept beside it. But the two groups at each end, perhaps related through marriage, probably shared a cooking fire. Space also was divided according to sex. Men stored their tools in customary places. Women had separate storage and workspaces. Men gathered around the central hearth to gamble or tell stories. When they left for the hunt, the hearth became the woman's domain. Protocol also governed the noise and activity within these cramped quarters. In the 1850s, a German scientist named Johann Kohl spent a number of winters in Chippewa wigwams around Lake Superior and was struck by their peacefulness. It was so quiet around as if the huts were uninhabited that we were quite astounded on entering to see a number of persons collected in groups in the room. This stillness is usual in all Indian wigwams. As with every step, you invade the territory of another family and might see all sorts of things that a stranger ought not to see. Respect demands that the guest should sit down directly and fix his eyes on the ground. 
Indians, as a general rule, are not fond of restless people. For the summer, tribes of the woodland prairie borderlands also built bark houses with gabled roofs, vertical walls, and high ceilings. When the Sauk Indians built their large square houses, they oriented the door to the east, naming that side where daylight appears. The west, they called, where the sun goes down. While a wall post on the north was known as noon, these summer buildings, constructed along the lines of the smaller gable Chippewa house, represented a house type that had probably been in use for centuries. That was the conclusion of archaeologist Marshall McCusick, who in 1970 excavated an 11th century village in northeast Iowa. Called Grant Oneata, the site has ground remains of sizable buildings. In re-examining the journals of early explorers, McCusick learned that in 1687, Henri Jutel, aide to Sieur de la Salle, had visited four Coapa villages near the mouth of the Arkansas River. Jutel had come upon huge bark houses, each accommodating as many as 200 inhabitants. Later, in 1806, the American soldier and explorer Zebulon Pike, while searching for the source of the Red River, visited an Osage Indian village in the Ozarks, whose structures ran to a hundred feet or more in length. In northeastern Kansas, in 1811, the American Indian agent and explorer Major George Sibley encountered a summer village of Kansas Indians of more than a hundred, commodious houses averaging 60 feet long and 25 feet wide. In 1915, the Winnebago of Wisconsin told anthropologist Paul Radin that long ago they had lived in gabled-roofed ten-fire buildings. From such documentation, McCusick hypothesized that during the summer, these big structures housed families related by clan. Some of their village plants probably reflected and reinforced their social organization as well. A Winnebago elder told Radin that in the past, Villages have been divided by an imaginary line running northeast by southeast. On the northeastern side were placed the wigwams of members of the Winnebago clans, which were grouped within the Sky Moiety or division of the tribe. Members of these Moities were exogamous. That is, they chose marriage partners from the opposite Moiety. Thus, a Sky person would be the spouse of an Earth person. The Sky Clans took their names from such birds as the Eagle and Pigeon and were led by the Thunderbird Clan, which was responsible for handling civil matters. Their special wigwam served as a sort of courthouse, where internal disputes were resolved. In the southeastern half of the community stood lodges of the Earth Division, whose clans were named for land or water creatures, such as the wolf, fish, or snake. The leading clan of this moiety, the Bear Group, issued declarations of war, prepared war medicine, and served as the tribal police. Community offenders were punished in a special bear lodge. A sacred bear sweathouse used in certain rituals symbolized the body of the clan's mythic ancestor. Its structure and furnishings corresponded to parts of the sacred bear's anatomy so that upon entering the lodge, worshippers felt drawn into the protection of the animal's heat and power. Sacred Enclosures Certain religious ceremonies were accorded their own structures and spaces. A bower of sapling arches enclosed the rites of 
Midewin, or Great Medicine Society, which some scholars argue became widespread among Great Lakes tribes shortly after the arrival of Europeans. A period dubbed by some anthropologists as contact traditional. The Midewin lodges were the largest structures built by Great Lakes peoples in historic times and quite likely evoke the form of outmoded domestic dwellings. The barrel-roofed frames, known as the Mitawakan, extended a hundred feet or more in length, and skins or cloth lined the perimeter of their earthen floors. Originally, they were walled waist-high with boughs, mats, or bark, but by the turn of the century, loosely draped canvas had largely replaced the natural materials. Sacred poles of cedar representing the trees of life rose from the lodge floor, which in turn the Chippewa associated either with the earth or Lake Superior. One rite in which a solemn procession wove around the poles possibly celebrated origin migrations. Members of the society were ranked by their progression through four degrees of initiation into the ritual's mysteries. The tiniest sacred building used by many native groups across the Great Lakes and much of the subarctic was known to Europeans as the Shaking Tent or Conjuring Lodge. It was a bent sapling frame, no larger than a telephone booth, made from special woods that had been harvested according to ritualistic instructions. After a shaman stepped inside, the booth was swathed in bark or canvas. From there, he dispatched a supernatural helper to bring him answers to the questions of his rapt audience. Where was game? Were someone's relatives in good health? Were enemies nearby? Eerie voices and chattering bird calls emanated from the enclosure as the lodge shook in convulsive movements, its top covering sometimes lifted into the air. In the late 19th century, the drum dance ceremony began replacing the Midouan rituals. The drum dance was performed in a broad, open, circular arena, ringed with lodges and signifying the universe. In the center, a large decorated drum was hung from four feathered staffs, representing the cardinal directions. Over the years, the open arenas were replaced with roofed halls, whose form probably derived from the Plains Indian log or lumber dance enclosures that had become popular during the reservation period for housing the grass dance. The buildings were generally four six-sided, with turrets in the middle of their pitched wood shingled roofs. Inside, they might have support posts colored according to sacred associations, such as red for south and blue for north. Wooden benches lined the wall and preferred floor was earth, beaten hard from dancing feet. Wigwam Today The domed wigwam form survives in modern Indian communities largely due to the sweat lodge ritual. Sweat bathing, using different structures and wet and dry heating techniques, was practiced throughout Indian America, but the Plains Indian cleansing and prayer rite has become the most widespread. It takes place within a small bent sapling frame, usually of supple willows, tightly enclosed with quilts or tarps, originally buffalo hides were used, to prevent the escape, the escape of steam. A pit in the center or to the side of the floor holds rocks that have been heated to a glowing red in a large fire near the lodge. With the frame completely shrouded and the participants huddling inside, a leader ladles water over the hot rocks and hissing steam fills the interior. As the heat grows in intensity, so do prayers, 
testimonials, and songs. In the past few decades, the right has become a bonding experience in rural and urban Indian enclaves across America. Even in some prisons, Indian inmates have been permitted to build sweat lodges in the outdoor exercise yard. In its purest expression, woodland Indian architecture endures today far from its regional homeland. Segments of the Kickapoo tribe in Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, and northern Mexico still use wigwams and follow seasonal residence patterns. 400 years ago, the Kickapoo were a typical Algonquin-speaking woodland, people living in separate winter and summer buildings of sapling frame and cattail mat in southern Wisconsin. But from the early 1700s until the late 19th century, they resettled several times, splintering into different bands as they migrated southward to escape Euro-American encroachment. Their journeys eventually led some Kickapoo to Mexico, where in the mid-19th century, the Mexican government allowed them to stay in the northern state of Cahuilla. Today, in hamlets outside of McLeod, Oklahoma, Nascimento, Mexico, and Eagle Pass, Texas, the Kickapoo still build wigwams using local materials. This article has a number of important images and photographs, which include important captions and descriptions. Wigwam architecture. This early engraving of a Chippewa Ojibwe frame is reproduced in Lewis Henry Morgan's Houses and House Life of the American Aborigines, originally published in 1881. The wigwam has remained a popular building type over the centuries. The bent sapling frame of a Winnebago house, pictured above, is covered with reed mats. Wigwams varied from 7 to 20 feet in diameter and were originally covered traditionally with reed mats and bark. Their separate frames and coverings made it relatively easy to transport wigwams. In 1691, an Algonquin told a Frenchman who was trying to persuade him to adopt a European house, We can always say more truly than thou that we are at home everywhere because we set up our wigwams with ease wherever we go and without asking permission of anybody. The Chippewa Wigwam The house under construction was photographed in the early 1920s. The framing poles, shown at top left, were set on the ground slightly angled out to increase tensile strength when bent. Women and children tied the vertical posts together. Once the horizontal sappings were added, the, right, the bark covering was unrolled and tied to the frame. Wigwam coverings and interiors. A Chippewa house at Leech Lake in central Minnesota is shown. Birch bark scrolls cover the roof and cattail mats form the walls. The leaning poles help hold the bark on the frame. A top view sketch was made in October 1761 by Ezra Stiles, president of Yale College. While visiting Neantic, Connecticut, Stiles called on Phoebe and Elizabeth Moherge and George Wachitz, who lived in two of the six wigwams still standing on the Indian community of 85 people. A cutaway reconstruction sketch of the Mohegue dwelling was made from Stiles' notes. The traditional raised sleeping platforms with mats were surrounded with furnishings of European manufacture. The door flap has been thrown back to show the interior of a reconstructed Chippewa wigwam. Pattern woven mats are the floor, basswood fibers ready to make into string 
and tools hang over the skin-covered bed. A Chippewa house shown is covered in birch bark scrolls sewn together with spruce root. Elm bark. Elm bark being stripped from the living tree. First, a serrated ring is cut around the tree. Then strips are peeled off with the aid of a wedge or axe. A Potawatomi house in Kansas is covered with elm bark. An external sapling frame secures the stiff covering. Algonquin extended lodges. Domed wigwams could be easily extended as was this birch bark covered Chippewa structure. A Chippewa long lodge on the St. Croix River in Wisconsin is shown as well. The single family bark and mat conical wigwam was lengthened by adding a ridge pole. Summer house. Summer houses of the Great Lakes were gabled roofed and covered with bark. In front usually stood an arbor or ramada used for shade or drying meat or corn. The house near Zor, Wisconsin, shown in upper left, of Somam Jin, a Minomini, is flanked by a ramada and a garden of native beans and squashes. And this photo is from circa 1916. The Sioux village of Kaposia in central Minnesota was painted by Seth Eastman circa 1850. The scaffolds in front of the bark houses provide shade during the day and sleeping space above on hot nights. Bundles of corn were hung from the posts. Artist Frank Sindelar recreated the interior of a Quapaw house built by Southern Siouan-speaking people whom the Marquette Joliet expedition visited in the summer of 1673. These houses could hold 200 people. The low platforms lining the room was draped with furs. Construction sequence for a Minamini summer house are presented. Four upright crotch saplings are connected by poles fastened in the crotches. Crotched uprights support the ridge pole and rafters are lashed from ridge pole to connecting poles. A horizontal pole is added to form the lintel and a framework is constructed for the walls. The Midawinwin Lodge. The Midawinwin or ceremonial lodge of the Midawinwin religious societies was a major ritual setting for Indians throughout the Great Lakes. Ceremonies were held in long building frames made of bowed saplings, which were often partly covered by brush or cloth and could extend for a hundred feet or more. Sacred birch bark scrolls of symbols kept by special leaders of the society recorded the procedures for the ceremonies and seemed to depict the tribe's historical movements as a series of movements through the sacred lodges. The structure itself was sometimes known as the Blue House, or in some accounts was said to stand for Lake Superior itself. The drawing, shown at the top of the page, is from the Midowin Leader Scroll, circa 1891. The photograph below shows a long, uncovered Midowin frame on the Seine River band of Chippewa in Rainy River, Ontario. A ritual procession on the opposite page in a Grand Medicine Lodge on the La Couture Oriel Reservation, Wisconsin, from 1899. The Shaking Tent. The Shaking Tent, or Conjuring Lodge, as early chronicles also called it, was the setting for a divinatory rite performed by specially trained shamans across much of the Great Lakes and the subarctic. It was a small booth built of saplings. The Chippewa customarily used three birch 
and three spruce uprights and two birch and two spruce horizontal hoops to bind it together. Other tribes used four or seven uprights. Three of the saplings were planted deeply in the ground and angled slightly outward so that when they were drawn together at the top of the building was held in a state of tension. Rattles of caribou and deer hooves or cups of lead shot were tied to the frame. The floor was usually softened with freshly cut spruce boughs. After the shaman entered the frame, it was completely covered with bark or cloth. Onlookers could hear strange sounds issuing from inside as the tent swayed wildly from side to side. During his transcendent state, the shaman could dispatch a supernatural helper, usually a mystical turtle, to distant regions to answer questions from his audience about the most auspicious places to hunt, the well-being of distant relatives, and what would happen in the future. A native observer who reported seeing small lights like stars around the top told anthropologist A. Irving Hallowell, We cannot see them, but we understand that turtle rests at the top of the lodge, feet up, keeping it from sinking into the ground. That thunder is at the top, covering it like a bird, and that the other spirits are perched around the hoop that encircles the frame. They look like human beings, about four inches tall, but have long ears and squeaking voices like bats. The Chippewa Lodge, shown lower left, built near Little Grand Rapids, Manitoba in 1934, is covered with a canvas top and birch bark walls. A Chippewa shaman, shown below, stands near a frame with its ribs tied at the top. When the shaman enters, he is at the center of the world, the place where he can make contact between two worlds, the horizontal world of humans and the vertical world of mythological beings, as the vertical axis, realm of mediating beings, and the horizontal axis of the earth and the human realms. A Drum Dance Lodge The Chippewa Drum Dance Lodge at Mill Lac, Wisconsin, circa 1910, is shown above. Examples of such many-sided dance lodges are also found across the Great Plains. These structures, which could hold gatherings of entire communities in private, represent the struggle of Indians during the early reservation period to preserve their religious and social traditions. Found throughout Indian society today, a 15-pole set in a round plan, roughly 7 feet in diameter and 5 feet high. A Kickapoo Wigwam frame, is 20 feet long by 14 feet wide and 9 feet high, is supported and stabilized by two interior posts and a horizontal ridge pole. The frame consists of 25 to 30 saplings set in an ovid plan. Placed about one and a half to two feet apart, the thick ends are set firmly in the ground, then bent, overlapped about one and a half feet and tied. Modern Wigwams this inventive wigwam with radiant floor heat was built by a Chippewa craftsman and farmer, Albert Isham, with his nephew, Ernie St. Germain. St. Germain noted that this lodge originated among the Lac Coutre Oriel band of Chippewa and that, according to his great-grandfather, it allowed his people to endure the cold winter. Neither the use of double walling nor of radiant floor heating has been corroborated in the literature on Great Lakes Indians. St. Germain said his great-grandfather was a very ingenious man. Perhaps he may be the source of such a style of wigwam. A 20th century tar paper wigwam in Wisconsin is shown as well. 
The Winnebago Indians of Wisconsin, who for a time were ineligible for government housing projects, used modern building materials for their traditional wigwams. In 1978, anthropologist Nancy O'Leary documented these hybrid structures. Dr. Lurie believes that the modern wigwams appeared no earlier than 1910. Forerunners, she noted, developed from the dome or ovid patterns in terms of substitution of both canvas and tar paper for cattail mats and slippery elm bark coverings. An early variation, and some still exist, had a shed-like projection to hold a door. The modern wigwam with radiant floor heating is presented as 8 to 12 feet in diameter. The frame is built with 12 to 15 poles, 2 feet apart. Maple is used, but ironwood is preferred. The fire is built in a recess in the rocks, which radiates stored heat after the fire dies out. A birch bark cylinder provides airflow into the fire. The floor is cedar or balsam boughs covered with rush mats, furs, and rugs. Swamp moss and clay protect the floor from the hot stones. The inner frame has birch bark, wigwas, tied to it. The outer frame is built six inches from the inner frame and the space is stuffed with swamp moss for insulation. The covering is elm, cedar, or basswood bark. Today's episode of the Dadcast was brought to you by the Surly Server and your friends at the Vegan Triangle. Remember, every day is a learning day. The Dadcast is a Two Dogs and a Stick production.